Welcome to Buildings and Beyond. The podcast that explores how we can create a more sustainable built environment. By focusing on efficiency, accessibility, and health. I'm Rob Aldrich. And I'm Kelly Westby. And before we get into this week's episode, we wanted to let you know about a couple of upcoming events. Dylan Martello, who is a Passive House consultant here at SWA, and is really instrumental in putting this podcast together, helping to produce the podcast. He's going to be speaking at both of these conferences, and he'll give you a little bit of info about them. Thanks, Rob. The first is Building Energy NYC Conference, taking place on October 3rd and 4th in New York City. The conference, which is presented by Northeast Sustainable Energy Association, or NESE, N-E-S-E-A, has become a staple for professionals and practitioners in the field of high-performance building, energy efficiency, and renewable energy. We have been to the Building Energy Conferences for many years now, and my colleagues and I are looking forward to returning for another great event. Visit nessie.org for more info. Yeah, I've been involved with Nessie for 20 years or so, and really good people, and I've learned tons at Nessie Conferences over the years. Next is the North American Passive House Network Conference and Expo taking place at the David L. Lawrence Convention Center in Pittsburgh, PA. Join us October 17th through the 21st, where we'll be speaking on a variety of topics related to Passive House. Visit napnconference.com for more info. Thanks, Dylan. This week, we're talking about Zero Energy Buildings, ZEBs, which is an acronym uh, probably a lot of people here hear more or see more. I certainly do. Uh, it's a big topic. We don't get to the bottom of it, but uh, we do our best. I'm talking with Paula Zimmon, who is the Director of Sustainable Building Services here at Stephen Winter Associates. She's an RA, but also does really a lot of energy modeling. And she focuses on larger buildings, larger multifamily buildings, commercial buildings, and institutional buildings. And I'm also talking with Carla Butterfield, who is a Sustainability Director here at SWA. And she's uh, all about residential, from single-family residential homes all the way up to large, tall, multifamily buildings and, and everything in between. And she does a lot of work with certification programs. Zero Energy Ready Home, which we talk about here, uh, LEED, National Green Building Standard, among several others. Uh, so this episode, really, we talk about all types of buildings, small to large, different programs, different systems, different paradigms, and even, I, I think we started the episode with a discussion of different meanings of zero energy buildings. What does this really mean? So let's get to the interview. Welcome, Carla, Paula. Thanks, Rob. Thanks for being here. Great to be here, Rob. Uh, so zero energy buildings is a big topic. It's, I think, even getting into kind of the mass media. I see it in newspapers and stuff, not only in the magazines and journals and conferences I've been going to for a decade or whatever. So it, it's, a gro- it's a growing topic, growing in popularity. And you guys have certainly dabbled in it. And it's a growing trend. Yes? Yes. I would say it was a buzzword 10-ish years ago where most people in the industry knew what zero energy buildings or zero energy construction meant. And now, and then went through kind of a controversial period of what does that really mean and what do we really call it? That was going to be my next question. Okay, (laughs) But you're right, it is in the mainstream now. And most people who are at all familiar with the built environment know what zero energy means. So what does zero energy mean, Paula? Zero energy building. 
So I think in my world, because I work more uh, in the commercial sector and larger buildings, um, zero energy buildings uh, gets limited uh, to a building scale, which can be very difficult to do. So uh, in my world, I think that we're approaching zero energy on a broader scale at the community scale. Ah, okay. Um, so there's certainly a, a low energy building uh, focus. Um, there might not be the ability to get to zero energy, but uh, there is a, certainly the drive to how can we as a community or a larger uh, set of buildings get to zero. So, I mean, it seems at, at the core level, we're talking about very efficient buildings, very low energy needs, be it electricity or fossil fuel or wood or whatever, low energy needs, and you can meet all of those energy needs with renewable energy, wind or solar or whatever. I mean, that's right. That's kind of the general idea. That's the general idea. A lot of people will argue there's no such thing as a zero energy building because of the fact that you are using a fuel. And so it's really a net zero or net neutral fuel building. So that was, yeah, so that I've had people like jump down my throat where right. I say zero energy building and they say, no, 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 net zero energy building. And I actually seriously don't, I don't understand that distinction. Right. But and so, you... and then saying net zero energy also is somewhat offensive to some people. So they want to say, you know, what we are is we're, we're neutral with fuel. So one fuel offsets the other. So if you use some natural gas, you generate even more electricity from PV or right. something to exactly. offset that natural gas? Right. And that's easier to do in low-rise buildings, um, especially single-family buildings or really small multifamily buildings like Paula indicated. Harder to do in, in more commercial or high-rise buildings because you don't have enough room for that PV to offset if okay. it's on your roof. There's a lot of other solutions for that too. I'm sure you're going to ask that question in a bit. Yeah, a lot of the controversy is that even though you're a net zero building, you're still using the grid. And how does the grid get its energy? Usually through fossil fuels. So if you're really talking about uh, a carbon neutral building, that's very hard to do from, um, uh, from the building scale unless if your grid is carbon neutral. So unless if your grid is hydro um, or some other you know, non-fossil fuel um, source. So you could also be off the grid, potentially, to be at carbon neutral. Okay. So it's a difference between a net carbon neutral building versus a net zero energy building and your relationship with the grid. Okay, okay. So as a catch-all term, zero energy buildings, you're going to get disagreement about that? Yes. No, we're not going to today It all comes down to how to you want to define industry. it. You have to define what uh, zero energy means to you, whether it's zero carbon, uh, net zero, or, or some other sort of definition of it's Zero okay. energy cost. Right. I, mm. Which is not, they're not necessarily I, zero energy cost. I think to keep pushing this into the mainstream and have it be more than a buzz phrase, it has to be something catchy, which is why zero energy or zero energy buildings has caught on. Okay. Even though we can see there's many, many layers to that. <laughs> All right. Well, th there's actually some papers maybe we can include in the show notes that different definitions and how, yeah, if people want to dig into that more. Sure. And I think that one of the definitions is either uh, the modeling approach or the actual utility bills. Oh, certain good, good distinction. Right. right. Mm -hmm. So, and you guys both do a lot of energy modeling. Right. And Carla, you're, as you said, you're on, re you focus on residential, single family all the way up to larger multifamily. Right. And Paula, you're on kind of larger multifamily and also commercial institutional. Right. And Carla, single family, it's easier with single family. It is. And you've worked on 
several? Half I've a dozen? worked on several single family or duplexes that have done either approaching zero or zero energy. And we have verified it in a couple of different ways, both with an energy model and then with 14 to 16 months worth of utility bills to show that they actually were cost, energy cost neutral or ah. negative in some cases. And for other projects, just with the energy model that either predicted the usage and then tested out and gave it what we all know is the HERS index, the Home Energy Rating Score Index, to okay. indicate that it could be um, a zero energy building. So with the HERS, we'll probably, I'm sure we'll get into this in future podcasts, but the HERS index, you know, 100 is kind of like a mediocre average home, and zero is theoretically a zero energy home. So lower is better. Lower is better. And in the Northeast, where we do most of our consulting anyway with the zero energy stuff, um, we have to get down somewhere around 40 or maybe even 35 to get to kind of the sweet spot to then put on PV to get the HERS index to zero. All right. Interesting. So what do you do? What, those, those, those homes that have a HERS index of 30 or 45 before any renewable energy, right. what, system, what systems do you see? Right. So, And we see this in the single family homes, the duplexes, and also the low rise multifamily. We've done a couple of projects, one in Ithaca, and we have a few more on the drawing board that have been successful from 15 units four stories to 60 units and three stories. Strategies are kind of similar. It's usually um, a high efficiency assembly and that can be either a double stud wall so that we're doubling up on the insulation value or some rigid insulation on the exterior of the wall that's then put siding over it so you, obviously you don't see it. So that'd be a high efficiency or a high performing wall assembly. And then in most cases we're looking at triple pane windows um, and then the roof in our region has to be really well insulated, sometimes as high as an R90. Huh. In some cases, we can be closer to 60, but we've had projects that have had to go as high as 90 in the attics or on the flat roofs. Are these, are these, these are like passive house specs. Were some of these passive houses that got to zero energy? Yeah, so the Ithaca project I mentioned, um, the rest of the community, the duplexes and single-family homes, some of them were passive house certified. Several of them were lead for home certified. All of them were Energy Star Indoor Air Plus and the DOE Zero Energy Ready Homes program. All right. And then the multifamily, the 15 unit, followed all the protocols but didn't go through the certification processes. Okay. So programs. There that's another question for both of you. Zero energy programs. Uh, you mentioned zero energy ready home, which I always stumble over that name. Right. That's DOE. Yep. And that is in a nutshell, can you give us a In a quick... nutshell, that is um, a high-performing apartment building or home that has a HERS index of 45 or lower. Um, is that a line? PV. Is that a hard line or is that like an approximate line? I'm pretty sure that's a hard line for uh. at least in our zones that we work in. Okay. I'm not sure if it changes in zones one and two. So kind of a, a practical line. You haven't seen it really work all, all the zero energy ready homes have had 45 or less? Or it's like you just have to get 45. You know, know the answer to that question okay. that you're asking me at point blank because some of the, <laughs> because it, it also goes with some of the state programs. So NYSERDA has a hard line for, okay. and then Connecticut does as well for the tiers that in qualifying. And all if right. you qualify for those tiers, you also have to be zero energy ready. Ah, so you gotcha. So anyway, it gets, you know, it gets kind of an alphabet soup of confusing. Yes, okay. Um, but yes, there's the DOE zero energy ready homes, which can apply to anything that can be Energy Star labeled. So it has to be Energy Star labeled. It has to be, meet indoor air plus requirements, and it has to meet 
a pretty stringent domestic hot water delivery requirement, which is a bit tricky for multifamily. So that's what a ZERH is. And then there's another... And uh, Indoor Air Plus is an EPA air quality certification. It is. It's a companion certification to the Energy Star program. Okay. Um, and then there's the Living Building Challenge. There's an energy pedal in the Living Building Challenge. There's also a separate pathway for zero energy, uh, sorry, zero energy certification in the Living Building Challenge. And we've had one project achieve that. Uh, single family? Yes. Cool. And that program can also apply to any building type, commercial, residential. It's open. The, it, the, the requirements living. are very simple. You have to demonstrate um, zero energy. So it's They're not modeled. It's measured. Yes, for it is, the it's living, measured. For the living building challenge. Yes. Okay. And so larger buildings, Paula, either of you, have you worked with multifamily buildings that have gotten a that zero energy pedal? or zero energy, larger buildings, not on the commercial side, multifamily side. Okay. So the push with the multifamily side has been the... Everything that pushes this really are incentive programs and financing, either requirements okay. or incentives through financing. And so we're. So people aren't, in your experience, people aren't just trying to get to zero. They're not hordes of people trying to get to zero energy. Just, there are not just hordes because. in general, and there certainly are not in the multifamily sector. <laughs> okay. It is pushed for the affordable multifamily developers by their financing. Okay. And the requirements that come in the state of Connecticut and Pennsylvania specifically have um, enhanced the application process if you do passive house you get more points. And it's, since it's such a competitive process for financing, those points become very important. So that's uh, where we've seen an uptick in Passive House, which is a great pathway to zero energy building. Okay. Yeah, the problem though with getting zero energy in multifamily buildings anywhere from like three to four stories and above is just that you have a, a much larger building volume to available rooftop ratio um, and and the ability to offset all of your energy use within that limited area. And just It's just a matter of numbers. You just don't have the amount of area that you would need, which is why you would, if you were interested in, it, in a zero energy building, you start thinking about buying uh, green energy from a portfolio from a community, um, you know, distributed energy resource. Okay. I worked on, I worked on one, I had a very small role on one zero energy multifamily uh, project up, up near Albany. And we, he, we just did some consulting on the HVAC in the units. He wanted to get away with very, very simple heating and cooling systems. Um, but I think they... I think it was three or four stories. Twenty. That's about the that's about the the limiting range. Three to four stories. Something. But they had. I think. I think the PV was like covered parking. PV covered parking. So that you know, I'm it's not a building. It's kind of the site. I am surprised that we don't see that more often. The uh, the covered parking PV over covered parking, particularly in the more suburban areas. Um, maybe it's the cost of the additional structure uh, that you would have to install, but the. Uh, I, and that would be a great place to put PV for our multifamily buildings, three to four stories or other otherwise garden style apartments, but it isn't often seen. I think it's just not um, really, it's not that it's not accepted, but it's, it's not something that we see in the Northeast. I see it a lot more down South. I've seen covered parking in Florida quite a bit. And um, I think what I have, we have one project in um, North, North Ham, Ham, in Massachusetts. Okay. Is that where uh, 
Amherst and those schools are? They're right around Sorry. there. Yeah. Right around okay. there, yeah. Um, but they're looking so hard for places to put the PV because they are targeting zero energy for uh, dormitory. Gotcha. And so they're lifting up um, above HVAC equipment on the roof, on you know pedestals for the PV, as well as on the carports. So you know when you think outside the box, there's places for it to go. But that's a that's a pretty rural area up there. Yeah, yeah. And you have to have the space for it. It's not going to work in Manhattan. It's not going to even work in Cambridge. We have another project yep. in Cambridge with a university, and um, they came when they came to us. One of the first goals was we want to be zero energy. We want this seven story dorm uh. to be zero energy, and quickly found that as hard as. We were working with the envelope and the model, which Paul is working on. Um, they weren't going to reach zero energy. Not on, not within the building footprint. They'd have to look beyond. Right. Okay. Well, and this dorm also has a cafeteria and some other amenity spaces, right. and so the usage is pretty high. Right. So, Paula, when you get into bigger multifamily buildings, how does the modeling change? How do the programs change? Um, in terms of zero energy, similar, similar to what Carla was saying, um, there's really only the um, International Living Futures um, pedal certification for zero energy buildings. As far as um, like programs? As programs. Far as programs go. There's, a, there's a voluntary um, uh, self-reporting that you can uh, report to the National Building Institute, NBI, um, to claim that you are zero energy, and that can be either uh, modeled or actual. Oh, interesting. Yeah, okay. um, but that, that's sort of, um, you know, your self-reporting, it, it's on you to prove it. I see. Yeah, um, but there's no other... Um, you know, a particular program on the commercial in the commercial market. Okay, but modeling it. modeling tools are different for commercial. Yeah, and, multi, and big yeah. multifamily than so. Than whereas Carla uh, often uh, uses uh, hers software, Remrate primarily. Uh, we can use um, uh, any number of um, ASHRAE approved or DOE two modeling programs. We primarily use Equest or Open Studio uh, for that modeling. Um, the, the concept for zero energy is the same, though, whether you do a single-family home or do a, a, you know, a school or an office building. Uh, you primarily just want to know what your loads are on the inside, balance out what the envelope needs to be, and provide a, a robust envelope, um, and, and then uh, downsize your HVAC equipment and be thoughtful about your ventilation systems. Um, and you at least can get to a low energy building, if not uh, net zero, if you don't have the ability to uh, install renewables on site. So if somebody comes to you and, and says, one of these clients you've been talking about, we want a zero energy building, we want a zero energy dorm. First step is... Tell well, them that this, the, the residents cannot bring in extra refrigerators. <laughs> 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 or tell them that they're limited to one laptop per student. <laughs> I guess this when I, when I talked to Lois about passive houses, I mean it was like it all depends on where in the design process they are. I mean, if they come to you very very early, you can really focus on the design and the envelope. I I assume to get the envelope as good as possible, and modeling helps on that front. You really have to model. You really have to model to understand the equipment that uh, an owner anticipates in the building to understand the schedules of that building. You know. Um, an apartment building is going to be different than a dorm because obviously the density is, is different in terms of people right. um, and and the kind of equipment, uh, families versus you know young twenty somethings um, in a dormitory and the equipment that they can bring in versus a, a school which might only have like two uh, computers per classroom or maybe.
maybe a high school has computers in all their classrooms for every student. So the, the level of equipment uh, can be anywhere across the board. But ideally it is, it is during schematic design. If okay. not, definitely during design development. And okay. the yeah, model, I, would, I would say even design development is almost too late. In some cases, probably for the bigger buildings or the more complicated yeah. ones. And the modeling should be, there should be continual iterations in the modeling as the, as the designs are being developed. And there should be several plan reviews, usually at 50% design development and 100% design development, then again at 50 construction documents. Uh. And then after when they do that, that really horrible thing called value engineering, <laughs> which isn't really what it's supposed to be. So after a VE set or a VE session, we get our eyes back on the plans again to make sure that none of the critical elements have been taken out and not properly replaced. <laughs> and so you, you mentioned the, the downsizing the HVAC, and that, that was something, that's one of these kind of concepts that I remember hearing talked about 20 years ago, but in practicality, rarely seeing, but that's, I think, coming into play, yeah? I mean, you're, you can say, if you go an awesome high R, airtight envelope, there are opportunities to save some money on yeah. the HVAC. And the equipment is available in the sizes that are appropriate for the single-family homes. Right. So when we get down from, we might have seen a house that had um, load calculations saying they needed five tons for the cooling, and when properly calculated room-by-room low calculations, it comes down to two tons and that piece of equipment is available. So that's great. Okay. But when it comes to the multifamily, um, where the loads are incredibly low on the high performing buildings. Like per apartment, you like mean? Like per apartment. Mm-hmm. Um, in most cases, this is going to be a per apartment situation because the owners very seldom want to own the utilities. They might be willing to own, say, natural gas bill for the domestic hot water for a central system, but they don't want to own all of the tenants electric. So these are sub-metered or individually okay. metered, which means that every apartment has its own heating and cooling source. And so to get those really small, that's when it gets tricky. Gotcha. And on and on institutional buildings, commercial buildings, the loads are often like internal gains driven, not so much envelope driven. Most of the time we find that in commercial buildings or even the more dense, higher, bigger multifamily buildings, um, you don't really need more than about an R20 um, uh, opaque wall assembly. We always recommend better windows, always recommend triple pane. Um, the windows are always the, the weakest uh, link in your, uh, in your envelope assembly. Yeah. Um, but what is really driving the energy of the building are those internal loads, are all the equipment, all of the people, all of the ventilation uh, within the building um, that's driving cooling and heating loads. It's the envelope, uh, you know, doesn't really keep too much out when you have to ventilate the building to the level that you want your building to be healthy, and yeah. and you don't want to fight that. Um, but that that uh, it's always a balance when we're talking about commercial buildings of how much ventilation do you want to provide, how healthy do you want the interior to be versus um, the energy use of that building, because yeah. more ventilation is going to be more energy. Another reason why it's easier for smaller buildings, I guess, for single family, right? Because yeah. it's it's really envelope driven rather than internal gains driven. Mm-hmm. So. We mentioned schools, we mentioned colleges, but Paula, there's there are a lot of interest 
in like public schools and school Absolutely. agencies to go this way. Is yeah. that that's a, is that a whole different can of worms? Is that a? Um, I think uh, net zero certainly is possible, and, uh, more so in public schools because it's a it's very repeatable building typology, and I think that uh, there's a lot of studies that are out low there. rise typically They're right typically low rise. I mean, urban schools yeah, are gonna right. have a little bit more Difficulty when they they're approaching the four or five story. What you know, they have a smaller footprint that they can work in. Um, but certainly um, in in the burbs uh, where you have a two or three story school, uh, you can you can absolutely get to net zero fairly fairly easily. Um, but again, you do need to be cognizant of of how you're designing the building, what the loads are of the building, particularly kitchens. We had talked about kitchens previously uh, at one dorm. Um, yeah. Kitchens can have a very high load that uh, can make it difficult. To, uh, to meet your, your energy uh, goals. And remember, we had the conversation about net energy or zero net energy or net zero energy. Mm-hmm. And so when you're talking about the use of the building, it has even come up with the dorm that we were just talking about of whether or not it will be open in the summer for camps. And so that changes the dynamic because normally universities are closed for at least a couple of months. The dorms are being used for a couple of months. And the same would hold true for a school. So easier in an annual period to show that you're zero energy. Gotcha. You're generating lots of electricity if you have PV when you're not using much at all. Right. Yeah. And that that uh, introduces an interesting dynamic with the grid because if your school, which is producing the most amount of energy in the summertime, is otherwise shut down, you're exporting most of that generated energy to the grid. And, you know, is is there a payback with your local utility for, um, for that? exported energy, is there a benefit to you or not? And that that could play a role if it's a financial decision. Well, we've seen it play a role too with uh, nonprofits, so senior care facilities deciding not to go with PV because they're already locked into a very low rate um, for what they pay for the electricity, so there's no payback there to go. Right, gotcha. Yeah, and that's getting back to something you mentioned earlier with the schools who have all this electricity, excess electricity in the summertime, maybe that opens up Opportunities for zero energy communities doing that exactly is that and now I think we really need to start thinking um, beyond just the boundaries of our uh, of our buildings and start thinking about communities and how either commercial buildings can use that uh, that exported electricity nearby and and develop those relationships so that um, it's not necessarily a burden to the grid. Because as we see in California and Hawaii, there's a lot of renewable energy out there. It's too Too much. much. Too much at the wrong time, right? right? So um, in in California, Hawaii, they really need to start talking about energy storage so that they can, you know, use that energy that they're producing, just not at the time that it's being produced. Um, I think that'll start being part of our conversation as we start talking about these community district energy systems. All right, um, all right. So we can maintain that all within our communities. So how about codes? I mean, I've heard lots of talk about California mostly, but also New York, Massachusetts, trying to move to zero energy codes. Is mm-hmm. that, do you get, what, I mean, what does that, what does that mean? I've heard, I've, I gotta say, I've heard a lot more talk than substance on this topic. Well, for it's now. a little easier to do out in California, quite frankly, because, um, you know, the insulation goes a lot further, the PV goes a lot further. I mean, you need less insulation and you need a little more PV and you can get to zero a lot faster 
in those because zones. Of the, because of the climate? Because of the climate. Okay. And that's not true everywhere in California, right. for sure. But In San um, Diego? Yes. <laughs> Where you're heating and I cooling. am zero energy in my tent. Um, but yeah, it's definitely more of a challenge in zones four and five, which is Massachusetts and uh, New York State. So. And six, I think, right? And six, of yeah. course, yes, as you get up further north. Mm. Yeah. All yeah. right. Yeah, the last I think at the last I read that that California was kind of backing off on the whole zero energy mandate and zero electricity as a first step. Is that is that yeah? Well, to to be determined to be determined. But you're are you involved in New York policy or any other policy on the East Coast? I think. Well, I think well, you were in, talking about in, school authorities. In New York or City, they have developed the stretch code, which we okay. uh, we anticipate uh, in, the, in the coming months. Um, the stretch code, I think, is trying to get uh, to be twenty percent better than the current code. Um, I'm a little bit skeptical on it because um, knowing how energy modeling works, the regulated load uh, within uh, within our current code is already so low, um, and this percent better thing that we've done for so long is starting to um, be less um, effective. Okay. We need to start moving toward an absolute target of uh, some sort. Okay. As it, like similar to how Passive House has a target of thirty-eight, for example, uh, for new construction. 38. thirty-eight source EUI. I'm sorry. Okay. Uh, source energy use intensity. Um, so it's an energy per square foot. And sort of an energy per square foot, okay. right? On the source uh, basis. So we're however however much energy goes into generating the electricity from the power plant. Um, that goes into that that calculation. All right. All right. Um, I don't know if 38, I don't think that 38 is the right number for all building typologies, um, but I think we need to start talking about absolute numbers as opposed to this percent better, because this percent better starts to just be um, an obscure number that is very difficult to get to potentially. We've been finding um, that the percent better could be much more restrictive than a passive house, for example. Oh, really? So you can design a passive oh, wow. house building that doesn't necessarily meet stretch code. That's a problem. Yep, that's tough. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. Jeez. So if we come back in five years and talk about this again, what will we be talking about? We'll probably be having a very similar conversation. <laughs> However, we'll have many more examples. All right. um, I, I do think we're going to see the construction of some of these near zero or, you know, the multifamily is just not going to get to zero. But we're So I don't know what we're going to call them. But we're going to see more construction. We're going to see the fear factor go away a little the bit. The fear factor of, oh, zero energy, it's way too expensive, it's yes. way too weird. Yes, this okay. is not what we normally do. We can't build like this. It's outside of our, you know, the way we do things kind of thing. We're already seeing that change with sort of the second phase of developments that have done either passive house or close to zero or just getting to a HERS index of 40 to 45, which is a big jump for some developers in multifamily that might be used to 20 points higher in a HERS index. Uh, so okay. uh, we're moving in the right direction. And I think we'll... Hopefully we'll get the terminology down so that we're not spending half of the podcast talking about the words. Without determining, without coming to any consensus. Exactly. Yeah, I, I think terminology is a is hopefully what we'll we'll see a change in in, in my industry in the commercial world. Um, in the commercial world, we often say high performance buildings, and uh, I think we need to change that nomenclature to be low energy buildings or low carbon buildings um, because a Maserati and a Ferrari are high performance cars, and yeah, yeah they ride really well. I see. But what's their MPG? 
right? So we need and they are a little pricey. We need the we need the smart we need the smart cars. We need you know the little electric cars or hybrid cars or something a little bit different. That's going to be our solution. We need to change it from high performance. Although I would argue smart car doesn't really do it for me either. (laughs) (laughs) You mean you're talking about not a car that is smart, but the the little itty bitty shoebox cars? Yes, gotcha. Yeah. Well, hopefully, won't get too many emails about that. People loving their smart cars. All right, so it's not going to become standard practice, but people are going to be much more familiar with it. And, we'll and be, comfortable we'll, with it. And we'll have maybe metrics that are more meaningful. I think so. Nice. Cool. Anything else on the ZEB topic? Or we'll talk about it again in five yeah. years. Well, maybe sooner than five years. But <laughs> Great. Yeah. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Thanks Rob. Rob. Thank you for listening to Buildings and Beyond. For more information about the topics discussed today, visit www.swinter.com podcast and check out the episode show notes. Buildings and Beyond is brought to you by Stephen Winter Associates. We provide energy, green building, and accessibility consulting services to improve the built environment. Our professionals have led the way since 1972 in the development of best practices to achieve high-performance buildings. Our production team for today's episode includes Dylan Martello, Alex Mirable, and myself, Heather Breslin. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week.